and turn to Numbers. Numbers chapter 19. Again, we don't have the PowerPoint working for us this morning, uh, but uh, we'll have to pay close attention so you can fill in those blanks, right? Numbers chapter 19. This morning our message is entitled, The Ashes of the Red Heifer. The Red Heifer. Do you know that there was a red heifer in the Bible? Well, if you've read your Bible through and uh, read the book of Numbers, you would have come across it. So uh, if you haven't, well, you're going to hear it today. Uh, It's a very interesting chapter here, chapter 19, uh, contains an unusual ordinance that God had instructed the children of Israel to observe, and when we study God's word, I believe there's a very important principle to understand, and that there is one interpretation of a passage, but there may be many applications. Uh, This morning, I want to first look at the interpretation of this passage, and then its significance to the Jews, and then the application for our lives. The Bible does tell us that all Scripture is profitable. Uh, Even in the book of Numbers, we have the account of the red heifer here, and it's profitable for us as well. Now, the children of Israel were destined to wander in the wilderness for the about 38 years, because they failed to obey the Lord in going to the promised land at this point. Of course, there was 40 years altogether, but uh, for the next 38 years from where we are here, uh, uh, they're going to wander around. Uh, Those 20 and older would die before they entered in the land. Uh, That meant that they would probably have an average of 100 deaths per day uh, for the next 38 years. Uh, That's a lot of funerals. Um, When a person came in contact with a dead body, he was considered to be defiled by the corpse or the unclean. Do you notice, uh, go down to verse 11, uh, what it says there. In verse 11, he that toucheth a dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. You see down in verse 16, And whosoever toucheth the one that is slain with a sword in the open fields, or a dead body, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. You see, God designed a way uh, for the people to be cleansed as they journeyed through the wilderness. And one of the things that uh, he put into practice there for the people was that the priest would use the ashes of a pure red heifer. And we find that in chapter 19 here. It's a picture for us, really a picture of Jesus Christ. It's also relevant in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy today. So look first with me at the interpretation, and we want to look first at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 19, verse 1 and two, and the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. So we find here, first of all, that this is uh, the sacrifice here that's going to be made is going to be unique. So the sacrifice was 
unique. Uh, and we'll continue to read here because I think it's important for us to see this a little bit longer reading, but uh, stay with me here. Actually, we're going to read to the end of the chapter, so uh, get ready. You ready? Okay. And he shall give her unto Eliezer the priest that he may bring her forth without the camp, and one may slay her before the fa- his face. And Eliezer the priest shall take of her blood with his finger and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin and her flesh and her blood and with her dung shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it in the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and he shall bathe his flesh in water and afterward he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until the even. And he that burneth her her shall wash his clothes in water, and bathe his flesh in water, and shall be unclean unto the even. And a man that is clean shall gather up ashes of the heifer, and lay them up without the camp in a clean place, and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It is a purification for sin. And he that gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the even, and shall be unto the children of Israel and unto the stranger that sojourneth among them for the statute forever. He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with it on the third day, and on the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. Whosoever toucheth the dead body of any man that is dead, and purifieth not himself, defileth the tabernacle of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel, because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him, he shall be unclean, his uncleanness is yet upon him. This is the law when the man dieth in a tent. All that come into the tent and all that is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which hath no covering bound upon it, it is unclean. And whosoever toucheth one that is slain with a sword in the open field, or a dead body, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person they shall take the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin, and the running water shall put thereto in the vessel." And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that toucheth a bone or one slain or one dead or a grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day and on the seventh day he shall purify himself and wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean at even." But the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, the soul shall be cut off from among the congregation because he hath defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of separation hath not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. And he shall be a perpetual statute. It shall be a a perpetual statute unto them that he that sprinkleth the water of separation shall wash his clothes, and he that toucheth the water of separation shall be unclean until even. And whosoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean, and the soul that toucheth it shall be unclean until even. There, we got through it. Well, that gives you a little bit of the background of what we're going to talk about here. And if we talk about the interpretation, we first see that the the sacrifice was unique. This is the only sacrifice when the animal was required to be a certain color, one color, 
and where the animal slain was slain outside the camp. Now, a mature red heifer, that is at least three years old, was taken out the eastern gate across the bridge that spanned the Kidron Valley and was slain on an altar on the western side of the Mount of Olives. And the priest would be able to view the temple entrance when, he, when this took place and would sprinkle the blood toward the temple seven times. And it was the only sacrifice that was burned with cedar, hyssop, and scarlet wood. Its ashes then would be preserved in a stone jar after the sacrifice was burned. Stone does not transmit ritual impurity. Some of these ashes would be taken and mixed with water in a large cistern, and the water was sprinkled with hyssop upon a person to cleanse them. Now David refers to this in Psalm 51 and verse 7. Remember Psalm 51 is David's prayer of for asking forgiveness. And he says in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. How is a person cleansed? Well, that's a mystery. Solomon himself did not understand the mystery of the red heifer. Uh, the sacrifice of the red heifer was only the only one that made others pure, but made the person doing the sacrifice impure himself. Uh, it purified the impure and rendered impure the pure. Uh, that sounds like a mystery to me. I'm with Solomon on that one. Uh, we're not told how it happened. So the sacrifice was unique. Secondly, the sacrifice points to the gospel. This ritual points to the heart of the gospel. You see, the sinner must be cleansed in order into, to enter the presence of a holy God. And so the red heifer here is something that points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 Verse 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkled, sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? So 1 Peter 1.19 also says, But with the precious blood of Christ... As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, here we have a red heifer was killed on the outside of camp on an altar of wood. Christ was slain on the outside of Jerusalem on an altar of wood, was he not? It was called the cross. The red heifer had no yoke placed upon it. Christ did not have to be restrained or controlled. He went willingly and he gave his life for you and me. The blood of the red heifer was sprinkled upon the door of the tabernacle, indicating the offering was made to the Lord. The red heifer reminds us the importance of the blood. In Hebrews 9.22 it says, In almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. And the one who did the cleansing to make others pure became impure. What a picture that is of Christ who became sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be the, made the righteousness of God in him. The heifer was burnt with cedar wood. 
hyssop and the scarlet thread was thrown in the fire as well. The thread spoke of the great sin sacrifice and the need for atonement. And so when the heifer was burnt, the ashes were carefully collected, put in a stone vessel that contained the ashes of previous heifers and stored in a clean place outside the city. The new ashes were mixed then with the previous ashes to provide continuity and a perpetual sacrifice. We saw that in verse 21, and it shall be a perpetual statute unto them. Now, qualified, pure, red heifers were not in great abundance. They were very rare. Uh, Even one white or one black hair disqualified that heifer from being used. Jewish history tells us that on seven heifers had been offered from Moses to this destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so a heifer was offered right before the destruction of the temple according to uh, the scroll of, uh, of one of the scrolls of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have here this picture of the red heifer, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that brings us to the significance. Why are these ashes of the red heifer significant today? Well, the answer is the Bible teaches us that there's going to be another Jewish temple rebuilt. And it's going to exist in the last days, in the tribulation period, during, uh, as it described in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, in fact, it says in verse 1 and 2, And there given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Arise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And then in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Verse 3 and 4, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall, be, shall not come except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, and the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now why is that significant? Well, there is no temple right now. And the Jews are obligated to build a temple. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And so the significance of this also is that Orthodox Jews in Israel today take the position that a perfect red heifer must be found and sacrifice according to Numbers chapter 19 to provide the water purification for the purification of the next Jewish temple. Someone has reported that such a red heifer had been obtained in Israel and there only awaits the construction of the temple. I don't know if it's there waiting now or not, but they need a red heifer and they're very rare. But you might ask, what has that got to do with me? Why is this passage important to me and how does it apply to me? Now, when I talk about uh, a revelation here in the building of the temple and so forth. And, and you talk about uh, uh, what God, the Lord said to us in, uh, in uh, the New Testament about his coming again to catch us away. By the way, why are we still here? That was all supposed to happen last Monday, wasn't it? Well, the guy was wrong again. 
Read your Bible. No man knows the hour. And uh, yet we're supposed to be watching and waiting. And I trust we are. But here, let's look at the application. We've seen the interpretation. We've seen the significance. What does it have to do with you and me? We say, well, that's, that's for the Jews. Why is this important? And again, this is probably an unusual ordinance. It sounds very strange. Uh, young people might say it's weird. But uh, we say, how does that have anything to do with me? When the children of Israel were on the march uh, uh, and a man became undefiled and was declared unclean, they couldn't stop right there and put up a tabernacle and go through the ritual of offering a trespass offering or a sin offering. So why would they take the ashes of this heifer, mix with the ashes, of, uh, the ashes with water, and then with hyssop, sprinkle the unclean individual? To us, it sounds very strange, doesn't it? That's the way God dealt with sin for those people. Now, in the New Testament, we find another strange incident. When the Lord Jesus went up into the upper room with his disciples, the first thing he did was get a basin of water, and he washed the disciples' feet. Now, that's strange, isn't it? Why did he do that? Well, he tells Simon Peter the reason. In John chapter 13 and verse 8, he said, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. If the Lord Jesus had not washed the feet of Peter, Peter could not have fellowship with him. Uh, he had, to come uh, had come from the Father, and he was going to go back to the Father. Again, in John 13, you go a little farther uh, back in the chapter, or farther ahead, uh, back in the chapter, verse 3 and 4, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from the Father and went to God, he riseth up from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. You see, now Jesus has gone back to the Father. And he's still girded with the towel of service. Even now, the basin of water is the water of the word of God. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies it. You could say the Holy Spirit is the hyssop. And hyssop speaks of faith. When you and I sin today, Christ does not have to die again and again and again. We're told in 1 John 1 and verse 7, he said, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. That light is the word of God. If we walk in the light, what do we see? Well, we see, you know, if we really walk in the light of God's word, we see that we're dirty. We see that we need cleansing. And the spirit of God begins to convict us. And the word tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, will keep on cleansing us from all sins. But the water of the word and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ might be applied to us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, he died for our sins. He did not only die for those sins up to the time we came to him. He died for the sins from the time we came to him at the cross until he gives us a crown. Now, don't tell me that you don't sin after you've been saved. I had one man say that. 
He never sinned anymore once he got saved. He just made some mistakes. No, don't tell me you don't sin after you've been saved. Sin in our lives is a fact. And many Christians neglect that sin. Christian people get cleaned up for church. I I think you did all a great job this morning. You're all looking pretty good. You got cleaned up to come to church. You know, congregations smell better today than they used to smell before they had deodorant, perfume, and cologne, and so forth. But God, to God, they might even smell worse because they're still dirty. How many have been, uh, have been looking at things they shouldn't look at? Uh, they, that comes, you come to church then with dirty eyes. How many of you have been listening to some gossip during the week? How many have been hearing filthy things that you shouldn't hear? Well, then you come with dirty ears. Uh, Some have dirty hands because they're doing things they shouldn't have been doing. Some have dirty feet because they've been going some places where they shouldn't have gone. They come to church and they think, well, that makes everything okay. Well, it's not okay. You see, that's the reason the Lord says, If I wash thee not, thou shalt have no part in me, with me. You know, sometimes if a church service seems dead and the sermon seems boring, perhaps because you need a bath, a spiritual bath. 1 John 1 again, verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We don't want to lie. But if we do, then we have to confess that to him. It's important to go to him and tell him all of our sins. And you might as well just tell him because he already knows anyway. But it makes fellowship so much wonderful if you have your sins confessed to him. Now I want want you to notice here an expression in verse 9. An expression in verse 9. It says, And the man that is clean shall gather up ashes of the heifer and lay them up without the camp in a clean place, and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel. Here's the expression. For a water of separation. A water of separation. And then it goes on to say, It is a purification for sin. When I think about this idea of separation, I cannot help but think of the great need of many, many Christians today to be a separated people. I guess one could say that many Christians are separated today, but they're separated in the wrong way. There are many people who call themselves Christians who lead two totally separate lives. They have a church life, and then they have their life at home or on the job. We see this many times in the younger generation. For most, and I do mean most, there's no connection between living their life in a way that is pleasing to Christ and how they conduct themselves on a daily basis. They simply live like they want. They please themselves in a total self-absorbed lifestyle. I heard of a college age group that went to a horrible, filthy movie after a Bible study. They got into their car, they listened to the horrible, filthy, worldly music on their way to the filthy uh, movie, 
And there was absolutely no connection between their lifestyle and what being a Christian was to them. And it's not just the younger people. We can't say, oh, you younger people, you, you need to learn this. No, some of us older people need to learn this as well. You see, it's not entirely just the younger ones. They were well taught by the older generation. Their thinking is, well, Jesus and God are only here to serve me. And when I need help, or I'm worried, or there's a tragedy in my family, I can use God as an emotional crutch, and I can use him as a feel-better drug. Heaven is always nice to think about at the funeral of a loved one, isn't it? What these people have is fire insurance, and they've heard about heaven, and in a selfish moment they say, Oh yes, I care about that. I just don't want to go to hell. But they want to go to heaven just in case there is one. If you have to say a little prayer to do it, you will. But don't ask them to give up a single thing that they might want to do. Now we can't really call these people Christians. Maybe they are, I don't know. You see, God judges the heart. But God said, we will know children by the fruit that they bear. Many of the people who attend Baptist churches all over the country bear fruit that would only be eaten by themselves for their own pleasure. Maybe that's why they leave one church and they attend another church and makes them feel better. They listen to the preaching of the truth because the truth of the scripture begins to make them feel uncomfortable. So they find another church. Reminds me of a story that I heard of a man who was stranded on an island for 12 years. He tried everything to uh, get the attention of passing ships and planes that flew overhead. And he waved and he wrote messages in the sand and he built fires all to no avail. And so he continued to live on this island for 12 years all by himself. One day a plane flew over unusually low and spotted him. The pilot sent back a helicopter to rescue the man. And when the helicopter landed, the man was so glad to see him. And he said to the pilot, Oh, thank you, thank you for coming to rescue me. I've been here for 12 years, and I just want to tell you how happy I am to see you and how grateful I am that you came to rescue me. The pilot said, Okay, okay, that's fine. Get the others, and let's get going. The man said, Others? There are no others. It's just me. I'm the only one on this island. There's no one else. Pilate said, but I was flying over and I saw three huts. And the man exclaimed, well, one of those huts is my house where I live. And then the other one is my church. And the pilot was quite impressed. Here's a man who built himself a church. And then he asked, what's the other hut for? He says, oh, that's the church I used to go to. People often don't like to what they hear in one church, so they'll go to another church someplace else, and they maybe they like it there, or they hear something they like until they don't like it, but then they go someplace else. But Matthew chapter 7 says, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A corrupt tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits shall you know them. We know people by the fruit that they bear. Of course, we have our hyper-grace crowd. 
any biblical rule or standard that a preacher exhorts him to follow is just written off as legalism. Legalism is man's law, trying to be righteous by man's way, but holiness is a requirement. Living a life that honors God is mandatory. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And then in verse 24 it says, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which he hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. You know, sometimes these verses in John chapter 14 will drive people crazy. It messes with their, uh, their, their minds. It says, it's my life, and I'll live it like I want to live it. You can't tell me what to do. Listen, I can only teach you what the Bible says. But Jesus can, do what, uh, can tell you what to do, just as he did those in the verses there in the book of John. Now, many people think the Bible's outdated. It's just a, a book of myths that's written by man. And so, well, that sounds good. I'll take that. That doesn't sound good. I don't want that. Whatever fits into their selfish lifestyle. And if you believe that, you're not under the total authority of God's word. And you have a bigger problem than just the way you think. You have a problem of whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. And I assure you that one day you will find that reality uh, will set in. You know, Christians are not perfect. Christians do sin. But we don't have to lay in it. We don't have to sit in it. Uh, we don't have to seek it out. We don't have to continue being habitual sin, never striving to gain the victory through Christ. And there are, uh, there are those who live a lifestyle that reflects our Lord. Our home life, our work life, our choices for entertainment always reflect our allegiance to the one who sought us and bought us and taught us and saved us forever. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christians are to be holy. And so as I close, let me just point out four truths about holiness. Because that's really the main teaching of Numbers chapter 19. That's really the teaching of the uh, ashes of the red heifer. Notice, first of all, the possibility of holiness. The possibility of holiness. The possibility that the believer can imitate God's holiness or live a life personal separation to God from sin lies in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Apart from salvation through him, there is no possibility of forsaking sin, imitating God's holiness, or having victory over sin. This is that part of the doctrine of salvation which is com commonly identified as sanctification. Paul describes this desire, his desire to do good and his frustration with the ever-present sin and the war he experienced within himself. He, he describes that in Romans chapter 7. He describes the only hope for victory and deliverance is in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7 of Romans. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Paul not only lays out his hope in Christ, 
but he clearly declares that the work of Christ provides the believer with a potential for a life of holiness. It's possible to live holy. You see, that's the way, that's the work of God's, God's work of sanctification in a believer. We can live holy. But notice, secondly, the position of holiness. The position. Because holy living is possible by the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches a believer is viewed by God as having been sanctified at the time of salvation. His position is that of a saint. We've talked about this already in our study of the book of Ephesians. We're called saints. Say, I don't feel like a saint. No, but if you know Christ as your Savior, you've been called a saint. Several passages of the scripture that that, uh, describe positional holiness of the believer before God by simply calling Christians saints. You'll find at the beginning of most of Paul's writings, he refers to Christians as writing to saints. The believers who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Secondly, we're called holy. Several seemingly stronger indications of the position the Christian occupies before the Lord. In several places, Christians are addressed as being holy. They're called holy and beloved in Colossians 3.12. They're called holy brethren in 1 Thessalonians 5.27 and Hebrews 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And a holy priesthood and a holy nation in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so we're called saints, we're called holy. And so there's the possibility of holiness, and there's the position of holiness, but there's also the practice of holiness. The practice of holiness. Now having said we're referred to as saints and holy means that we're to have a separated life, but not an isolated life. What is God's purpose for separating Christian life or a holy life? What is the purpose Well, the purpose is that we might have an effect, a powerful witness in the world. God left us here on this earth for a reason. The purpose of holy living is to show lost men and women that there's a difference that Christ can make in an individual's life. We're not to be isolated from the world, but rather to live holy lives in the world. It was God's will that the children of Israel live pure, clean, and holy lives, even as they traveled through the wilderness So they could account, uh, we have this account of the red heifer sacrifice. And again, this sacrifice, a wonderful picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Why did he die that you and I might be saved? Why did he save us? We're saved to serve and to live lives that are pleasing to him. That's the practice of holiness. And then fourthly, the perfection of holiness. The perfection of holiness. You know, the believer's sanctification will be completed in heaven. When Christ returns, the believer will be perfected in holiness. Our purpose, uh, or God's purpose for the Christian is clear. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He sees both our present sanctification, and the completion at the return of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 
Paul says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 And then Paul states that God's purpose for believers is that they should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. So in other words, holiness in the believer is is perspective. It it has to be accomplished uh, as we're perfected in the likeness of Christ. Now I wonder this morning, is there a need for cleansing in your life? No, we're not going to take a red heifer and sacrifice it. We're not going to take the ashes and save them and, and purify the way they did then. But if you're not saved, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior from the, wages, uh, from the wages of sin, then you need to trust Christ today. You need to recognize that you're a sinner, that God is holy, that salvation is free, and accept that gift of salvation today. And Christians, we may need to come to Him for cleansing. I wonder, is your lifestyle characterized by holiness? Someone may ask, well, how often should I come to God for cleansing? Well, I don't know about you, but I, I usually take a shower every day. You say, thank you, Pastor. I appreciate that. I usually wash my hands, you know, on a daily basis, multiple times. How often should we come to God for cleansing whenever we get dirty? Daily, multiple times. And I find that I must go to God two or three times or maybe more. Tell him I've been wrong. I shouldn't have looked at that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. May I say to you, we want to keep ourselves sweet with him. And the only way you can do that is to have a confession of sins before the Lord Jesus Christ. The offering of the red heifer is a wonderful, marvelous offering. It kept the children of Israel sweet on the wilderness march. This was their deodorant, if you please, for the wilderness march, so they might walk in fellowship with him. I wonder, are you walking in sweet fellowship with the Lord this morning? Let's bow our heads in prayer.